so we find that cancer survivors, when we ask them how, um, how they rated their care, they usually rate it pretty highly. They're just so grateful to be alive. If you can interview somebody and have them talk about real, you know, lapses in care or, you know, things that are not ideal or challenges that they faced in getting the care, but then you ask them to rate their care team, they give them high, high ratings because they're just grateful to the people that saved their lives. Well, when we ask the caregivers the same question, not so much. They were, they rated the quality of care across the board at like 10 to 15 points lower than the survivors did. Um, These weren't like matched pairs like you and your wife. It would just be, but we could compare them to the 1300 survivors in our sample and, um, Caregivers were much more likely to be engaged in decision-making and really want to do all the research about the treatment options. A lot of the survivors are just, you know, you're like the empowered advocate who wants to know everything and does all the research. But uh, more than half the people in our survey say they just rely on the doctor to tell them what to do. You're listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Join Michael Holtz and his guests for conversations about all things ORAU. They'll talk about ORAU's storied history, our impact on an ever-changing world, our innovative scientific and technical solutions for our customers, and our commitment to the communities where we do business. Welcome to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Welcome to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. As ever, it's me, your host, Michael Holtz, in the Communications and Marketing Department at ORAU. And as ever these days, I'm joined by my co-host, Matthew Underwood, also from the Communications and Marketing Department. Matthew, how's it going? It's going good, Michael. You know, we've done a few of the podcasts surrounding, you know, cancer within the organization and what ORAU does for cancer and brought in some special guests surrounding in the cancer space. I'm excited for another conversation. I am really excited for today's conversation um, because the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, um, which we are talking about today, has become an organization very important to me as a long-term survivor um, of cancer and as someone who is seeing um, long-term effects of cancer treatment. The longer I live past treatment, the more side effects I'm seeing as a result, which um, on the one hand is good and on the other hand has its challenges. But here to talk to us about the NCCS is my friend Shelley Fulton-Masso, who is the CEO of the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship and someone I've gotten to know really well over the last couple of years. Shelley, I'm so excited you're here. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. And I'm just going to take a second to brag about you a little bit. I mean, I know that you didn't ask me to do this, <laughs> um, but in your, you know, in addition to your work, uh, your work life, you uh, are an incredible advocate. I mean, truly, you know, volunteering your time with so many organizations and sharing the, you know, good, bad, and ugly of cancer survivorship and really trying to uh, support men with cancer because, Mm. you know, we know that, you know, most, unfortunately, most advocates are women and we don't have enough men advocating for each other and for saying like, it's okay to recognize that this is really hard. It's okay to get support. Um, for mental health, for your physical side effects. You don't have to just tough it out. And 
it's so important to have people like you um, sharing your experience and being an advocate and the fact that you share it so broadly with many organizations and try to really get get that message out there. It's just, you are a, an incredible advocate. I am grateful for what you contribute to NCCS, but also to the whole cancer community. So that was, uh, he did not pay me for that. <laughs> he did not ask me to say that, but I just want to say like, you are truly incredible. And I, I thank you for all that you do. Well, thank you for that, Shelly. I, you know, I decided actually really early, probably within 24 hours of my diagnosis that, and, you know, I was diagnosed back in 2012 when there weren't a lot of online and social media resources available, right? Um, to just be wide open about what I was going through, um, to demystify really what the cancer experience is all about and to show people that hey, if I can do this, you can do it too. Um, so all of that to say, thank you for that. I, it has been the joy of my life, honestly, to be a cancer advocate. And honestly, so glad that I found NCCS. Um, I was, you know, I've been a, an advocate for NCCS for three or four years now. And really was at a point where I was like, you know, survivorship, <laughs> survivorship is an important issue. And NCCS focuses very specifically on um, survivorship issues and, you know, the, the broad spectrum from policy to, you know, day-to-day -day life as a survivor. So I'm grateful that NCCS is there. And thank you for your work and the work of your team, um, many of whom I count among my friends. So um, thank you. So very glad that that you and, and NCCS are there. So let's talk about um, out of the gate, Shelley, what is the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship? So we are an organization that was founded in 1986. A group of people got together. People were starting to live longer after a cancer diagnosis, it had, you know, it had been a death sentence and people right. were starting to have successful treatments that saved their lives, but they were left to fend for themselves when they were done with treatment. There was no such thing as post-treatment care. Nobody knew what to do with people. Nobody knew how all these treatments were going to affect people in the long term. And, uh, and at that time, even people were considered cancer victims. Mm. And so these folks got together to say, we need to do more to help people. And at this meeting um, that they convened over a weekend in Albuquerque, New Mexico, they created the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship and decided to define uh, someone as a survivor use the term survivor and define someone as a survivor from the day of diagnosis. So it's not just about, you know, completing treatment and going on your way after cancer treatment. It's really about living well with cancer and after treatment ends. And um, so they started just bringing together anybody who was interested in this topic. And I feel like we've made a lot, on the one hand, we've made a lot of progress in, you know, almost 40 years. Uh, we know that most people identify with the term survivor, um, even if they're still in treatment, which right. is great. Uh, our view is anybody, you should use whatever term makes you resonates with you as somebody living with cancer. And some people don't like that term and that's okay. Um, but the fact that it's 
very much common parlance has to do with the, the work that they've done over the years. And people understand that survivorship is sort of this distinct phase after treatment and that it's really important um, that we need to help people transition. But I also feel like we still have so far to go because all so much of the focus is on treatment, mm-hmm. early detection, treatment, uh, research, saving lives, cures, and not enough on what happens to the people afterward. And I feel like we're always sort of fighting for the attention, really, to under to, for people to understand that, you know, cancer is not over when treatment ends. Right. And we always hear from survivors that the first year after treatment is the hardest is harder than the treatment itself, even if they've gone through brutal treatments, because you go from seeing your care team every week, multiple times a week, whatever it may be, depending on what kind of treatment you had, to ringing a bell saying, see ya in three months or six months or whatever it is. And you're just left to pick up the pieces of your life and try to find your new normal, whatever that may be. And then even you might have family and friends who are like, okay, you survived. You should be happy. What's wrong? Why aren't you happy? Why, why are you still dealing? Like, isn't this behind you? And um, people don't really understand. Now, I'm not a cancer survivor myself, but just in talking with you and so many other cancer survivors, I mean, we just hear the the challenges people face. And, and I think we do a lot better at addressing the physical side effects and not enough of the emotional side mm-hmm. effects and the, you know, all of the other ways cancer impacts someone's life. So back to what is NCCS, we work on all of these issues. We advocate right. for in Congress, in the federal government. Um, we, we do a lot of public policy work because we know that policy, public policy drives how care is delivered and what kind of care you get. So, so part of what we do is bring people to Washington, D.C. to talk to their legislators, which you've done with us before, mm-hmm. and to talk specifically about survivorship issues. We also provide a lot of data about um, survivorship. We do a survey every year, our State of Cancer Survivorship Survey. We provide resources for healthcare professionals who want to improve survivorship care uh, and research on survivorship needs. Uh, We educate patients and survivors and caregivers themselves. And we also try to educate advocates like you who want to be involved in this work. And we try to uh, support you in your efforts, but also match people with opportunities. So when people come to us and say, I need somebody with this experience to help advise us on this project, we can say, oh, I know uh, Michael is, is a mm-hmm. colon cancer survivor and, and, you know, and he might be able to help you with this. So that's, that's one of the things that we do as well. So those are just some of the things that we do. You said, Shelly, you're not a cancer survivor. How did you get connected to NCCS? Um, well, I started my, uh, I, I studied public policy, p- political science and public policy, got a master's degree in public policy. And then I went and worked in the internet industry for a while, which had nothing to do with my degree. And I wanted to get back to using my public policy skills and my nonprofit skills that I'd studied in graduate school. I started working for Susan G. Komen in Dallas um, and worked for them for almost 10 years on a number of different issues, working on public policy. And um, at, at, 
that's how I really got into the cancer policy realm. And then after I left Komen, I uh, was hired by NCCS uh, initially as a policy director, and then they asked me to be the CEO. So my family and I moved from Texas to the Washington, D.C. area. And I last fall celebrated 10 years at NCCS. Um, I think, you know, but in that time period, you know, I've had a lot more family and friends who were affected by cancer. Um, You know, NCCS's definition of cancer survivor extends to the family. So by that token, I have family and friends who have that I have supported through their treatment and some who have survived, some who have not. Uh, But I don't call myself that because I don't feel the same kind of experience that you've had. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've had a lot of close family members and friends. and I've seen kind of the good and the bad and the ugly of the cancer care system and even clinical trials. My best friend died in, um, I believe it was 2012, of, of kidney cancer. And he was a doctor himself. And he, um, you know, just seeing what he went through, he he was diagnosed with stage four cancer, knew that it was not curable at, uh, at the time. He lived for 19 months. He was on a clinical trial. Um, he, you know, he didn't always report symptoms that he was experiencing during his clinical trial because he was afraid he was going to get kicked off the trial. And he was so sure that this, this drug was going to save his life. And, um, so, you know, and, and I saw some of the really great care that he received and also saw some of the really terrible care that he received in terms of, you know, not, uh, not recognizing what his prognosis truly was and not getting him, the palliative care and end of life care he needed until it was way too late. And he only had hospice for about a week and he could have had a better mm-hmm. quality of life in the last few months of his life, but no one wanted right. to acknowledge. And he was, he knew because he was a physician, he knew it was time for hospice care, but his doctor wasn't really helpful. And wasn't, so it wasn't was, ready it was for that. Yeah. yeah. I can totally see that. So you talked about, you know, how, cancer does touch more than just the patient. Why was it so important to kind of expand that term of survivorship and the scope of that to include the friends and the family and the caregivers? Well, that was something that our, our you know, early on in NCCS's tenure that they did that, I think, um, you know, b- way before my time, but I think they just recognize how it, it is a, fam- a disease of the family. If you think about kids who watch their parents go through cancer treatment and that how that may affect them or having to care for a loved one that you lose and there's not enough support for caregivers. Um, you know, we actually are, I mentioned our state of survivorship survey last year, we added caregivers to that. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time we'd surveyed caregivers and we had 500 caregivers in our, our survey sample. And just, I mean, it was kind of like, we already knew from, you know, anecdotally what some of what it meant, but it was able, we were able to kind of quantify some things and see where, you know, asking the same questions of survivors and caregivers and seeing where they differed and how they approach treatment decision-making and the stress they feel and the support they feel. And, and caregivers have higher levels of stress in some instances, lower levels of support, because they're not the focus. Everybody's right. focusing on the patient and not the caregiver. And even when we looked at time off from work, um, I think the average uh, amount of time off of work per week, that's somebody who continued to work through their treatment for, for patients, for the cancer patient themselves, it was 18 hours. For the caregivers, 15 hours. Wow. So that's almost half of your time away from work every week to care for somebody. And there's no support for that. You know, there's no, um, you know, FMLA is unpaid if you can get it. And there's no paid leave for caregivers. Um, 
it's, you know, you can't take short-term disability for, for caring for somebody else that's paid. So mm-hmm. it's just, um, I think it's, I think it's an important recognition of how cancer is so affects the whole person and their family. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I've often said that caregivers are definitely highly underappreciated and, you know, the unsung heroes of a patient's cancer journey, because, you know, as a patient, I had one job, right? My job was to get well. The caregiver, my wife had to, you know, make sure that I'm taking my meds and getting to my appointments and sleeping and also paying the bills and making sure I was eating and, and working, you know, that she was working at the same time. So yeah, it's, the stress is unbelievable for mm-hmm. caregivers. And, you know, in the scope of things, my cancer, my cancer scenario was fairly simple. There are far more complicated, you know, far more difficult um, cancer scenarios as well. So I, you know, hats off to caregivers yeah. <laughs> across the board, truly. Truly the unsung heroes. Um, and it was interesting too, we found that caregivers were almost a little bit more of truth tellers when it comes to the experience. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you've survived, so we find that cancer survivors, when we ask them how, um, how they rated their care, they usually rate it pretty highly. They're just so grateful to be alive. If you can interview somebody and have them talk about real, you know, lapses in care or, you know, things that are not ideal or challenges that they faced in getting the care, but then you ask them to rate their care team, they give them high, high ratings because they're just grateful to the people that saved their lives. Well, when we ask the caregivers the same question, not so much. They were, they rated the quality of care across the board at like 10 to 15 points lower than the survivors did. Um, These weren't like matched pairs like you and your wife. It would just be, but we could compare them to the 1300 survivors in our sample and, um, Caregivers were much more likely to be engaged in decision-making and really want to do all the research about the treatment options. A lot of the survivors are just, you know, you're like the empowered advocate who wants to know everything and does all the research. But uh, more than half the people in our survey say they just rely on the doctor to tell them what to do. And it does differ by age and demographic group and things like that. But overall, and we do make sure our sample is representative who has cancer in the country. So half of the respondents are age 65 and over because that is who has, you know, that is representative who has cancer in this country. So it could, you know, sometimes it's age related, but, um, but also it's, you know, you're overwhelmed by the decision or by the the diagnosis. So you're just tell me what to do, doc. Whereas the, right. the caregivers are much more involved in the decision making and doing the research. And so that's another burden on the caregivers, mm. too. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, know, you talked about that survey a little bit. Kind of talk about, you know, the latest survey in 2023. Were there any things that came out of that that maybe surprised you or what was the focus of that survey and kind of the results from that? Yeah, so we do. uh, So it was our fifth year to do the survey and we're gearing up for our 2024 survey. Um, We some questions we ask every year just to kind of be able to have it as a baseline and see where there's comparison, like the question about decision making about care. And the first time we asked that question, it was even it was like more than 60% said they told their to do whatever the doctor tells me. Mm-hmm. Then we saw a big dip during COVID where people were not as willing to just do whatever their doctor said. And then it's been sort of creeping back up. Um, but we like to be able to compare year over year. And then we also have different areas of focus uh, each year. So 
So one of the areas that we focused on in our survey in 2023 was working through a cancer diagnosis. And so some of the respondents were already retired, but of the, of the respondents who worked through their cancer diagnosis, we asked them questions about you know, how much time they had to take off, how, uh, how they were able to. And, and not surprisingly, we found that the earlier productive, that their work didn't suffer. And, um, and so, you know, that's not totally surprising because often if you have a early stage diagnosis, you may not have to have chemotherapy, which might be more mm -hmm. debilitating or, you know, some, some cancers are even treated with just surgery alone and that's it. And then you can, you know, recover and go right back to work. So the later stage of diagnosis, the more, intensive the treatment, the more debilitating it might be, the more challenging it was to keep working and the more likely people were to have to either stop working or take a leave of absence. Um, we did say, people did say they wanted to continue working through their cancer treatment. It gave them some sense of normalcy. Uh, they felt a lot of support from their coworkers. Although we know some people don't even want to tell anybody at work. They just want to keep it completely oh, private right. and other people want to let people know so that they can support them. And some employers do a great job of really supporting people through it. Others, not so much. So we, you kind of hear the, uh, right. the gamut of it. But I think to me, I wouldn't say it was as surprising as it was nice to have sort of data to back up what we were, what we sort of thought we knew about what it was like to keep working through cancer. And I think we're going to ask those questions again this year. It helps to have a couple of uh, years of data on it to kind of compare. The other thing we do is when we do our survey, we start with some in-depth interviews. And we usually focus those, we do about 10 to 15 interviews, and we focus them on whatever kind of our topic area is. So last year, we did um, some of our interviews were with people who worked through their cancer diagnosis, through their cancer treatment, and then the other part was for caregivers. And what it does okay. is give us that qualitative information and also helps us to shape the questions that we ask in, in the quantitative survey that we send out to people. Shelley, do you envision a new topic area maybe being added to the 2024 survey? There are several things we're talking about right now that we want to include. One thing that we've been really interested in thinking more about is um, Medicare Advantage and what that means for cancer survivors, because we know that Medicare Advantage is now more, more than half of benefits of Medicare beneficiaries are in Medicare Advantage plans. And there are, you know, benefits and trade-offs of being in a Medicare Advantage plan. You can have some insulation uh, from, you know, out-of-pocket costs, but also a lot more prior authorization, a lot of uh, limited networks. Um, so we ask people what their insurance is right now, but we don't we ask if they have Medicare. We don't necessarily break it down into Medicare and Medicare Advantage. So we're thinking about additional questions we could ask to give us some more data on that because I think it's something that we haven't focused on enough in the cancer community, the challenges that Medicare Advantage poses to cancer survivors. And it's only going to keep increasing that percentage of Medicare beneficiaries who are in Medicare Advantage plans. And the, the fact is you could choose a plan that's really great, has a lot of benefits. You know, there's all that advertising that goes on while during the open enrollment period. Right. I don't really watch much TV, so I didn't see them. But I think if you do watch TV, you probably saw a lot of it back during that open enrollment time. And um, they offer, you know, gym memberships and all these benefits. And... Um, and it seems like a great deal, but then maybe you get a cancer diagnosis and then you find out that your cancer center is not in network. 
right. or that it's harder to get into a clinical trial because of your Medicare Advantage or something like that. So I think we're um, we're really thinking about it in terms of how we engage on it. From that more data from our survey would actually help us strengthen our policy efforts as well. So that's one of the areas that we're thinking about uh, adding to the survey this year. The other thing we want to do is we want to oversample for LGBTQ respondents uh, mm. because we didn't have enough in our survey last year to have statistical significance when looking at, you know, comparing them. We asked the same questions of everybody, but then we can kind of look at different all different demographic groups uh, and whether the stage of your cancer, the, you know, age, all different kinds of uh, demographics to see where there are differences in the responses. And we just didn't have enough uh, uh, among those uh, LGBTQ respondents to be able to make conclusions. So that's one of the things we're going to do this year. That sounds great. Um, And really important audience to get data on because there's not a you know there isn't a lot yeah yeah um one of the as an advocate for nccs one of the bills that we have um advocated for for a bit is the um, comprehensive cancer survivorship act um which as again as someone who i'm a long-term survivor it's been 12 years um cancer survivorship planning you know, wasn't really even on the table um, at the time I finished treatment in 2013, um, but is such a critical, you know, looking backward is such a critical need. And I wish, A, that it existed then, but, you know, looking even today, I'm like, well, let's let's start one because I'm going to be here for a while, you know, Um, because as, you know, as you said at the start, Cancer survivors are living longer um, because, you know, treatments and um, all of that have improved. So we have more, you know, we've 18 plus million cancer survivors alive today, um, more than ever. And their needs, healthcare needs are still going to be great and are impacted by the treatment that they have. So the the comprehensive cancer survivorship act is a really important piece of legislation for those of us who are um still here after you know after our our cancer treatments um what what is it about this and i know there are a lot of components but what's important about the the comprehensive cancer survivorship act well, you did a great job teeing it up because I think the care planning is really one of the important pieces. Let me just say that it was introduced back in um, June of last year by um, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, mm-hmm. Brian Fitzpatrick, and Mark DeSalnier in the House, and then Senators Amy Klobuchar and Ben Cardin in the Senate. And it really looks at the entire continuum of care from you know diagnosis to treatment through post-treatment to improve survivorship for all survivors. So one of the components is care planning that you talked so eloquently about, and it would create a Medicare service for cancer care planning. We did find in our survey that patients who said they had a plan, a care plan, mm. were um, more satisfied with their care, um, more satisfied or had better outcomes really. And so it, uh, we, and, and that we think patients should have a care plan at diagnosis, at any changes in the course of treatment during treatment, and then as that transition to survivorship to really help primary care providers know what your treatment has been, what are some of the potential 
late-term effects that might come up? What is the surveillance that needs to be done for any, um, you know, recurrence of cancer or any other types of cancer? A lot of that coordination falls to you, the patient, the survivor. Mm -hmm. And so having a care plan to really be able to share that with other providers would be really important and helpful. Uh, And, you know, most people don't get a survivorship care plan. That was, there was a big push to do them. And then a lot of providers found that it was too hard. It's not automatic to come out of the, um, a good quality one for patients is not easy to get out of the uh, electronic health records. It takes some time and it's meant to be more than a piece of paper too. It's not just handing you a piece of paper and saying, here's your plan. It's, um, talking you through, what does this mean? What are the things you need to do, um, to take care of yourself after your treatment ends? And then it's really should be a living document that changes Mm -hmm. because when things come up, you know, and you have different side effects that you're treated for, that should also be incorporated into the plan. So the fact that it would cover, uh, that this bill would cover care planning is a really huge, um, a huge component. There's other pieces of it. It does have a lot of provisions and we don't have time to talk about all of them, but a couple others that we think are really important and helpful is one, um, an employment assistance program Mm -hmm. that would provide some assistance to cancer survivors or families and their caregivers that have barriers to employment due to a cancer diagnosis. We do see, you know, when we ask about financial sacrifices and financial difficulties, definitely higher among young adults, among people living with metastatic cancer, uh, Hispanic and Latino resp- uh, cancer survivors and black cancer survivors have more are more likely to have financial sacrifices. And this would help give some targeted assistance, like helping them to maintain their job, to maintain their um, their uh, financial support while they're going through treatment. And then the, another component that we think would be really great is there an adult cancer survivorship study. There's a, a childhood cancer survivor study that really um, is an incredible source of data for researchers on the effects of uh, cancer treatment on childhood survivors. And, it, and part of that is because the majority of pediatric cancer patients go through a clinical trial and go to a research, a a cancer center that does research. So we follow them for their lives and know a lot about how their treatments have affected them later. We don't do that systematically for adult cancer survivors. You know, there's so, if we had better data, it would really help us to see a lot of times, you know, survivors are talking amongst themselves about common side effects that they're dealing with. And it's, there's nothing in the literature about it because no one's following them, right. you know, uh, systematically. So this would have, a, like, would, would ask the NCI to create an adult version of the childhood cancer study that would really do a better job of collecting that information about the late and long-term effects of, of cancer treatment. So those are just a few of the, of the provisions and we have more information on our website about it, but um, those are three that we think are really important and could be useful to patients and survivors. I love that. I love the adult um, cancer survivorship survey um, for a number of reasons, but, you know, primarily, you know, to be tracking. Um, yeah. I mean, one example is even just like one of our founders, um, Susie Lay, she's a 50 year cancer survivor. Now she was mm-hmm. diagnosed as a young adult um, after she came home from Vietnam where she was a nurse uh, and she had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Well, all the people treated for Hodgkin's lymphoma back in the early days, it, the 
the treatment was so severe and it was all this radiation to the chest that has led to heart problems, sure. uh, breast cancers, lung cancers, all kinds of issues that they have had to deal with over the years. And so when they, when people were diagnosed as teens and in their early 20s and live 40, 50, 60 years after, they go through all of these complications and there's not, and they, they have to network with each other to talk about what they're going through because we don't have the systematic data following them up on but yeah there's no one tracking right what's going yeah. on with them i was just as an example i was diagnosed with hearing loss um last year and it's turns out it's because of nerve damage from oxaliplatin mm -hmm. that i was treated with um and there's i found one study that was done of patients treated with platinum-based meds that experience hearing loss after treatment because again you know nobody's nobody's putting all the pieces together like as a patient i've had to go okay is this related is this something else is it you know and odds are because it's nerve damage mm -hmm. it's because my nervous system was you know <laughs> kicked hard by platinum-based meds during chemo so so yeah, it's, well, yeah, that goes back to the point that we talked about earlier. You know, it's you know your survivorship doesn't end the day that you are cancer free. You know, there are those other side effects, and you know it would be good to have a survey to track those, and even you know not only for the patient to know if that's connected to their cancer treatment, but just you know for doctors and scientists to learn about all the other side effects that may be out there to right. be able to treat future patients and tell people about it beforehand so they know what to expect. I mean, and, you know, I think people I think if you are prepared for it, you can deal with it more effectively. And interestingly, Michael, we added so we we work really closely with the um Dr. Emily Tonarezos, who's the director of the Office of Cancer Survivorship at the National Cancer Institute, and she has done a lot of work on hearing loss for cancer oh, survivors. And as a result of our conversations with her, we added hearing loss to our survey last year as a, you know, we ask about the different side effects you may have experienced. I'm going to get back to you after this and see, because I just looked at the data while we, you were talking and it didn't show up among the top, you know, 15 or so that we show on the page and sure. in, in the report. And so it was probably less than 10% of patients experienced it, but I'll get back to you with exactly how many, but we did add, ask that question because we were hearing more about hearing loss because it's not talked about very much that that's even right. a potential side effect. Right. And I think, you know, there on some level, doctors are still learning, researchers are still learning what all of the side effects are for yeah you know, some of these drugs, we know they're effective against cancer, but what do they do yeah. to the rest of the body? And I think yeah. we're still learning a lot of that. Um, so it, we've talked a little bit, we've talked about legislative advocacy, we've talked about this survey, um, but NCCS has stuff going on all of the time in terms of webinars and programs. And um, so Shelly, just touch on, you know, from a sort of high level perspective, some of the other activities that NCCS provides for survivors, for caregivers, their families. Well, you mentioned webinars. We do a lot of webinars. Um, we have sort of two series of webinars, but really they're available to anybody. One is for our CPAT, which is our cancer policy and advocacy team. That's our program to engage advocates 
which you are a part of, and we have a, a, over a thousand people in that program. And um, we do different to- different topics on all kinds of issues. We have one coming up uh, in February on um, head and neck cancer, and uh, we've done it's on on some of the functional mobility issues related to head and neck cancer and things that you can do about that. We've done um, webinars on. Um, kind of emotional issue, emotional topics on um, like heart health. On some of them are kind of practical things about managing your own survivorship, and some of them are about being an advocate. So it might be about policy issues that we're working on or effective advocacy techniques. Actually, last year, I think it was last year, you did a great uh, webinar mm-hmm. for us on media advocacy yep. and really teaching people how to tell their story in the media, how to get media attention for their local events and their local advocacy. So so it's kind of a mix of, you know, personal self-management, advocacy skills, and then policy issues. Right. And those are the, ad- the webinars we do for advocates. And then we also do webinars for our um, survivorship champions, which is our program for clinicians and researchers who are interested in improving survivorship care. So they're a little bit more targeted to healthcare professionals, but we also have a lot of advocates who attend and listen, and we did one in January on oral health uh, during cancer treatment and how some of the oral side effects of some of the medications and what you can do about it. It was fascinating. I learned so much about it. It was a woman who's a dental hygienist who saw in her practice and then through her family connections some of the challenges. And again, it goes back to there's no... (laughs) if we had b- better care planning and we could tell people that these are some of the things that, that might happen and here's how you can address them. But the problem is like dentists don't know about every treatment and all the potential side effects it could be. Right. Um, oncologists don't know how to address all the oral issues. And so you're left to sort of, I was frustrated because I felt like, well, this is great information. It's again, the patient gets caught in the middle and is, got the burden of doing this for themselves. And I want the system to work better for patients so they don't have to figure all these things out for themselves. There was so much information there that I didn't know. And so that was great. So we do, uh, and we have other webinars throughout the year, all kinds of different topics. Um, And we also do, you know, we did a webinar in January on um, some, we do a policy roundtable twice a year Mm -hmm. in DC. and, um, And so our fall policy roundtable, we talked about a number of issues and they were, really great discussions that we wanted to bring to all of our stakeholders who couldn't come to DC for the, for the round table. So we had, we talked about the inflation reduction act and the Medicare price negotiation that's currently in process. The first set of 10 drugs that Medicare is able to negotiate is uh, they're currently going back and forth with the manufacturers right now and will release their, their price for that later this year and includes one cancer drug. And then we also talked about Medicare Advantage, which I'd already mentioned to you. So I feel like we do a lot of webinars because I get to moderate a lot of them. And it's fun. <laughs> I channel my inner uh, Oprah and do my that's interviewing right. of people. And um, and so that's, that's a big part of what we do. It's a way we can also, you know, be in touch with our advocates around the country, you know, besides just when they come to D.C. in June. Right. Um. Shelly, anything we haven't covered that you want to make sure that we talk about about NCCS? 
I don't think so. I just uh, invite anybody, if you're interested in learning more, you can go to our website, which is canceradvocacy.org, and you can sign up to be on our mailing list. We do a, an email called Healthcare Roundup once a month that kind of gives uh, an overview of some of the health uh, cancer policy-related activities, what's going on in D.C., um, some of the news that's coming out um, about survivorship, about disparities and health equity, um, and also has updates on some of the webinars that we're doing and, you know, activities NCCS is doing that you could be part of. So it's a great way to learn more about what we're doing is just to sign up for that, uh, for, to be on our email list and get our healthcare roundup emails. It's a great email. I love, I love getting my email because it helps. That's me great. And also, if you're if you're an advocate, a cancer survivor, caregiver, advocate, and you want to sign up for the CPAP program that Michael is a part of, you can also do that on our website, and um, it's free to join. And then you'll get our our emails and learn about the different opportunities to engage. and uh, And we have our our CPAP symposium coming up in June yep. in Washington D.C. Uh, where we will have a couple days of education and a Hill Day where we'll go to Capitol Hill, talk to members of Congress about the Cancer Survivorship Act. And um, it's a very fun time. It is a very fun time. Great couple of days every June. So I love I love doing it, and I expect I'll be there again this year. Good. We hope you will. Um, Shelly, last question for you. What brings you joy? Hmm. Well, from a work perspective, I always say one of my favorite parts of the job is taking somebody to Capitol Hill for the first time who's never been and sitting in their meetings with their members of Congress when they realize, like, you can see the light bulb go off that, like, I have something to say and these people have to listen to me because I'm their constituent. And, you know, they may not do what you ask them to do, but they do have to listen to you. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, they listen respectfully, ask questions, engage with you. Sometimes you have people who are not as interested, but, you know, it for people to see that their story matters and they can make a difference for other people and that they can engage in the, as broken as DC is, and as much as, you know, members of Congress have to deal with all kinds of stuff. They love to have somebody like you come in and talk to them. Like that's <laughs> much better than most of the stuff that they deal with. Right. And so when somebody, I, people often are very nervous that going up there for the first time. And then when they do it and they realize I have something to say and they're listening to me and I can make an impact. I just, I love that. That's, that's my favorite part of my job. I think just in general, my job brings me joy because I love getting to know people like you and working with advocates and, and just, well, sometimes I feel like a broken record because we have to say the same thing over and over. We just have to keep doing it until people listen, until we get, you know, we have to get the message across that cancer doesn't end when treatment ends, that survivors' quality of life throughout from diagnosis through the end of their life is really important. And we need to focus on that. And I just like being kind of an evangelist for that. I love it. Shelly Fold Nasso, thank you so much for spending this time with me and Matthew today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was, it was a pleasure and an honor. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. To learn more about any of the topics discussed by our experts, visit www.orau.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at ORAU and on Instagram at ORAU Together. If you like Further Together, the ORAU podcast, we would appreciate you giving us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your reviews will help more people find the podcast.